Good afternoon. This is Dr. Jan Guerra, an authentic biochemistry podcast audio version. I've given, I think, three video lectures uh, last week uh, introducing a uh, subject of membrane biochemistry. And I told you we're going to get into discussion of membranes and the immune synapse, immune system. But I'm still um, giving you more of an architectonic approach to the subject because membranes are um, the kind of detailed discussion that I really want to lay a lot of groundwork. And within that, within that work, I want to be able to describe some very specific um, lipid mediator responses. And so I'm going to be talking about papers today. I decided to do an audio podcast rather than a video. I really recommend you go check out my YouTube channel and watch those um, couple, three hours of um, video lecture. So let's get into this one. This is now going to be lecture number four on membrane biochemistry. So remember that now we're going to, we're going to spend some time now talking about neuroscience. So I'm going to have to introduce a great deal of terms because each subdiscipline has their own terminology. So I want you to be aware of the fact that learning and memory depend on a membrane mediated neuronal plasticity and in a response to external stimuli, the neuron within a memory related locus of networks within the CNS will respond to a molecular pattern of signatures which basically accumulate as action potentials by adapting to a mechanism of a neurosensory plus a cognitive electrochemical action potential driven relay system. And what that relay system will do is cause encoding. Because remember, it's a memory that you have that you were talking about here in terms of the neurochemical response. Now, Classically, we talk about the Hibbian um, postulate, which says that neurons that fire together, wire together. Thus, a molecular alteration of a membrane excitability encoding potential, along with, let's say, a unique action potential procession, is going to provide alterations in synaptic strength. And that's going to be translated into a neuronal enhancement of connectivity in association with bioenergetics provided by the glia. Ultimately, you're going to obtain integration of ideation and a real-time phenomenological awareness of incoming sense data, or otherwise known as intuitions, with previous neuroplastic, conceptualization, and contemplation, the other two major components of human reasoning. So these mechanisms work within a membrane fluid dynamic coupled to epigenetic alteration of gene expression, starting at, of course, nuclear chromatin retailering involving nation transcription followed, of course, by usually cytoplasmic and endoplasmic reticulum-associated translation 
And that latter ER translation is going to also include post-translational modification of polypeptide, which is going to be trafficked via membrane lipid rafts to the appropriate endomembranous compartments. So you have a constituted development and differentiation emerging from a combined networking between nuclear and mitochondrial gene expression, because I mentioned the bioenergetics, under what could be called the canonical transcription factor mediated promoter enhancer splice junction chromatin retailering immediately reprogrammed via immune and stress hormone induction of an epigenetic composition, then reading and either maintenance of that epigenetic signature or erasure. <clears throat> now in the adult central nervous system, Considerable evidence supports a role for epigenetic modification in awareness, of course, consciousness and associated learning and the long-term memory potentiation. So demonstrably reversible in post-mitotic cells, you get DNA cytosine and adenosine methylation. And these have emerged as the dynamic epigenetic modification in adult glia, microglia, also known as resonant immune cells in the CNS, and of course, the neurons. Now within the neurons, cytosines throughout the genome are gonna be, of course, differentially methylated and then demethylated in response to an activation associated with a behavioral stimulation. Of course, that methylation, demethylation is going to be catalyzed, the initial phase of it, by a DNA methyltransferase. We've talked about these already. These are DMTs. It's going to occur <coughs> canonically on the C5 of cytosines, followed by a guanine, so-called CPG island. So you have two enzymes, DNMT3A and DNMT1. And when you go looking for them, they are indeed abundant in post-mitotic neurons. In fact, DNMT3A has been demonstrated to methylate cytosines on a single DNA strand, such as a previously unmethylated CPG island. And that would be called de novo DNA methyltransferase. Now, DNMT1, so that's 3A, which says de novo methyltransferase. DNMT1 recognizes previously methylated CPG sites on a single strand. And what it does is subsequently methylate cytosines on the opposing strand. And we call that maintenance DNA methyltransferase. Okay. So de novo. DNMT is going to be the 3A isoform, and the maintenance DMT is going to be DNMT1. Now, when you get DNMT-mediated conversion of a cytosine to 5-methylcytosine, what's been found in neuroscience studies, mostly in the murine model, 
is an implication for memory-related neuronal plasticity. And that occurs in specific brain regions like the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and the midbrain. At the same time, pharmacological inhibition of DNA methyltransfer or doing a double knockout of both the DNMT1 and 3A will disrupt memory function in the adult rodent model, while the reverse process, which is DNA demethylation, occurs through an array of enzymatic reactions we've already talked about, such as the 1011 translocation family mediated oxidation of 5-methylcytosine to, for example, 5-hydroxymethylcytosine. Remember that. So that's the TET 1011 translocation phenomenon. Now, active DNA demethylation can also, of course, be induced directly by CNS-associated sensorial experience and then nascent neuronal activity. So that is also implicated in memory formation. So you have de novo and maintenance DNA methyltransfer generating those two different composite type of CPG methylation patterns. But then you also have demethylation, and demethylation is also involved in the overall process of memory. Okay. Not just writing, it's also erasure. Of course, reading in between is assumed. Right? So Epi what that generally means, of course, is epigenetic mechanisms write experiential information in a persistent, however, a very modulatable mechanism. And the modulation can also include demethylation, right? Or simply converting via oxidation through that TET process, a methyl cytosine to a hydroxymethyl cytosine. That's going to alter the signature, as you recall. So, reminding you, DNA methylation modification involves two different processes then. We already talked about the addition and removal of a methyl group on the fifth carbon position of cytosine in a CPG island. But it can also occur on the sixth nitrogen atom of adenine. Now, both of those nucleotides, of course, are going to be in DNA, right? They're not going to be free nucleotides. So DNA-5-methylcytosine, or 5-MC, is, of course, considered the most prevalent DNA methylation modification, at least in eukaryotic genomes that have been studied. And again, it primarily occurs on those cytosines that precede a guanine, therefore a CPG site within a CPG string we call an island. Now, the presence of 5-methylcytosine is generally believed to prevent transcription factors from binding to a promoter region, therefore suppressing gene expression. So DNA 6-adenine methylation, we call it 6-MA, is, of course, more recently discovered epigenetic modification. And we found it in the human genome. And it's been demonstrated, at least in the human system, 
to be directly associated with development. That means it's probably more a maintenance methylation pathway for reasons I can get into later. So when you think about the modulation of DNA methylation in mammals, again, you have DNA 5MC, which is the canonical version. And of course you have the nitrogen, the six position. And this methylation that is generated is established by the writers, the enzymes called DNMTs for the cytosine and the N6AMT1s for the adenosine. Of course, those modifications are then identified and read by readers call, well, the readers have to have a domain. They have various names, the enzymes do. But the domain they're always going to have is an MBD. That's going to be a methyl binding domain, right? So any protein has a methyl nucleotide binding domain has the potential for reading either of those two signatures. And I say potential because it doesn't necessarily read it. And remember the erasers are things like the TETS, the 1011, and also this enzyme called ALK, A-L-K-B-H-1. Right? That's going to be the one uh, removing the methyl group off the adenosine, right? Okay, so just that, just a reminder. Now in the Murie model, in some work involving neonate parental attention to the infant, DNA methylation contributes to a memory-related synaptic plasticity. Now, of course, that's, that has to be defined. Synaptic plasticity simply means that the synapse is available for modification. But that kind of modification that we're talking about is one that leaves the mark. Therefore, it's a plastic response rather than an elastic response in molecular topodynamics. So in rodents, for example, you get strong membrane depolarization and a resultant synaptic activity decrease. This occurs at promoter methylation sites. You also get an increased expression of plasticity promoting brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Okay, so specific gene BDNF is activated by the membrane depolarization in association with promoter methylation. Okay. Now in hippocampal and cortical regions, all right, the DNMT inhibition that can occur blocks N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor-dependent long-term potentiation. So let me repeat that. In hippocampus and cortical regions, this is all in the Murray model. The DNMTI, we call it, that means the DNA methyltransferase, which involves an inhibition, will inhibit or block a specific receptor. That's the NMDA receptor. And the NMDA receptor does many things, but one of the things it does that, that there is a dependency on is long-term potentiation of excitatory synapses. Of course, this is going to alter 
the methylation status of the BDNF and another plasticity promoting gene called relin. Now we've discussed these before. Hippocampal long-term potentiation is impaired and long-term depression is enhanced in the mirroring model with a genetic forebrain deletion of both of the methyltransferase. That's a double knockout, DNMT1 and DNMT3A. So what does that basically then translate to? Active cytosine methylation therefore contributes to memory-related changes as recorded by synaptic strength by regulating synaptic scaling. Okay, so that's a modulatory effect, which is hierarchical. And a form of, which is, which is a form of homeostatic plasticity. And that involves cell-wide alterations and the abundance of postsynaptic receptors. And that occurs in response to chronic changes in neuronal activity. Now that is very likely afforded by a membrane lipid raft clustering phenomenon, what we were called nano clustering a few lectures ago. So in cultured pyramidal neurons, this is just down cultured cells, inhibiting neuronal activity with tetrodotoxin, that's abbreviated TDX, will alter cytosine methylation and will differentially affect the expression of genes involved in demethylation. Okay. So DNMT inhibition and DNMT knockdown, okay, those two factors, right, in cortical pyramidal cells and a TET3 knockdown in hippocampal pyramidal cells induces a cell-wide increase in synaptic strength. And the way it works is through kind of a novel generation of a glutamatergic synapse. So now you've changed the synaptic strength by altering its metabolomic biochemistry converting it to a glutamatergic synapse. That also appears to be a membrane lipid raft mechanism. Okay. Now, a paper published in Frontiers of Pharmacology um, a couple, three years ago, in April of 2019. We have to bring that into discussion now. Now, DNA methyltransferase inhibitors, there's two of them that we can talk about, to set a bean and azacytidine, those are DNA methyltransferase inhibitors, so they inhibit the enzyme which adds the methyl group. Those inhibitors are actually approved therapies for myelodysplastic syndrome and indeed acute myeloleukemia or AML. And other combinations of other anti-cancer agents are being tested as therapeutic options on these, these and on multiple solid cancers. So you have the two bloodborne cancers, I just mentioned the myelodysplastic syndrome, the myeloleukemia, but these kinds of inhibitors are also being tested with solid cancers like colon, ovarian, and lung. Okay, I want you to be aware of that. So this paper was published in Frontiers of Pharmacology, so that's why we're talking about 
um, drug mechanisms, right? However, and the reason I'm bringing this up, this is, <laughs> I'm bringing this up because I'm showing you something that was not described in that paper we were just talking about. There is a development of resistance of the inhibition of the DNA methyltransferases. And you get severe side effects from resistance to the DNMT inhibitor resistance. And you get then no or partial treatment response. And that can happen up to half of the patients where this has been studied. So again, we're using DNA methyltransferase inhibitors like decitabine and azacitidine. I told you there are approved therapies for the two bloodborne cancers, myelodysplastic syndrome and AML. And there are also, those two inhibitors are also being mobilized uh, and used as armamentarium for the uh, colon, ovarian, lung cancers. But you get side effects from using those two drugs. And the side effects involve basically a resistance, which then gives you either no response or only a partial response to the drug. So when doing that study, they identified some 638 distinct CPGs with actually an increased methylation in response to the decitabine treatment. These were in a cell line, a specific cell line called HECT116, or HCT116 cell lines. Now, that validated the findings in the multiple cancer types. And, and here we're talking about bladder, including ovarian, breast, and even lymphoma cell lines. Also bone marrow mononuclear cells from primary leukemia patients, as well as peripheral blood mononuclear cells and ascites fluid from a platinum resistance epithelial ovarian cancer patient um, population. So very curious, you're getting this increase in methylation with all these different cancers. Using a DNA methyltransferase inhibitor, you're getting an increase in methylation. And that rare, some 638 novel CPG islands. Okay. So that was all using decitabine. Now, azacitidine treatment also increased methylation of those CPG islands. And this was uh, observed in the cell lines coming from human colon, ovarian, breast, and lymphoma cell lines. So hypermethylated CPGs are, of course, going to be directly associated with cancer cell proliferation and apoptosis. So that means it blocks different terminal differentiation, you understand, which is a mark of oncogenesis. So it blocks the apoptosis by P53 and by other receptor pathways. So that means it's being influenced by the DNA methyltransferase inhibition because you're getting this hypermethylation. So what this paper showed was that hypermethylation of CPGs, of the, of the C5 on cytosine of a CPG island, is actually a novel mechanism that occurs because of the use of DNA methyltransferase inhibitors. And indeed, they discovered some over 600 different hypermethylated molecular targets, which were common to those two different inhibitors. 
the decitabine and the azocytidine therapies. So these are obviously contrarian side effects in cancer patients because you don't want hypermethylation because that seems to be associated with that blocking of terminal differentiation, therefore enhancement of oncogenesis. So what I'm telling you is, the reason I'm telling you this, if you go back and think about the other paper we're just talking about, about synaptic plasticity, and they're talking about say irregular features of using DNA methyltransfer inhibition. Remind yourself that what three years later, the paper I just described you from a pharmacology journal tells you that excessive use of DNA methyltransferase inhibitors can cause, yeah, a hypermethylation of unique CPG sites. So that means you may be looking not just at methylation, you might not might just be looking at inhibiting methylation. You might be looking at hyperactivation of de novo methylation. So inhibiting it and enhancing it. And you have to tease those two things out by looking at individual CPG islands. Okay. This is why epigenetics and epigenetic phenomena and epitranscriptomics is so terribly complex at the bench level. Because you have to know what CPG islands are looking at or what um, adenosine residues you're looking at for methylation patterns. And because you can write, read, and erase between two mitotic events, you won't even notice it occurred. So that means you have to have multiple PCR probes to be able to pick up using, uh, for example, by sulfide sequencing, all those different epigenetic markers, those different individual CPG or uh, N6A uh, regions within the promoter region or enhancer region or spice variant region, and be able to look at them differentially using a huge array to know whether or not methylation <coughs> or demethylation gives you the phenomenon. It's very, very um, problematic because that means you have to know what probes to make to be able to anneal to what CPG sites, you see. And there's so many of them, you have to you have to kind of choose where you think they're going to be associated most closely where transcription start sites are. So in your promoter region, that's where you start. I know this because this kind of work I did years ago in neuroscience. All right. So reminding you, synaptic activity mediates an input of information within a neuronal network. And the output of individual cells is ultimately conveyed by an action potential. Okay, I check my time here. So a neuron's propensity for generating an action potential from a given input, a stimuli, is referred to as an intrinsic membrane excitability, or an IME. So you have both passive and active membrane properties, which actually determine that IME. The passive properties include such things as membrane capacitance, that means polarizability, input resistance, okay, or the ability to modulate that polarizability. And plus, you have to include what the resting membrane potential was. And all of that is primarily determined by cellular morphology, which includes membrane topodynamics, plus the presence or absence of ion channels, obviously, in the plasma membrane that are open at rest. 
Now, those kind of channels have a very unique name. They're called leak channels, right? So the active properties of the neuronal membrane are determined by the abundance, spatial distribution, and the activity of the VGs, or the voltage-gated and calcium-activated ion channels. So memory-related changes in IME, termed intrinsic plasticity, predominantly occurs through alterations in the active neuronal membrane properties, where those intrinsic phenomena occur in response usually to some kind of behavioral stimuli. And that occurs, of course, in the hippocampus and the neocortex. So I'm going to continue this very, very interesting lecture because I want you to get deeply into this neuroscience phenomenon. Why am I doing it? Neuroscience. Why am I going after action potentials and membrane potentials? Because it shows you the inherent input of membrane lipids in all biological communication. We just drifted into a little bit of oncology to talk about DNA methyltransferase activity, right? And talk about membranes. Now we're going back to discussing neuroscience by talking about uh, plasticity of synapses. So I'm showing you those are two vastly different phenomena, right? One's memory learning and the other is a disease state. Both of them involve methylation patterns and both of them involve membrane potentials. I'm going to stop here. Again, this is the uh, what 20th of June, uh, 2022. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, audio version, saying bye for now. <laughs>